Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International's Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome, this is John Morgan with the Just Science Podcast, a production of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence and RTI International. Recently, I sat down with Ryan Lillian from Cadre Forensics and Todd Weller from the Oakland Police Department. On today's show, we're going to be talking to Ryan and Todd about their groundbreaking research in the area of optical topography and firearms identification. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks. Todd, you're actually an examiner in Oakland, is that right? I've been a forensic scientist for 16 years, all at City of Oakland Police Department in California. I started my career actually in drug analysis, so examining solid dose drugs, powders, green plant material to determine whether or not they have a controlled substance. After several years of that, I moved and spent about four years performing DNA analysis. And then for the past eight plus years, I've been in firearms identification, comparing tool marks on bullets and casings to test fires and de- determining whether or not particular fire components have come from a particular firearm. Tell me, Ryan, about where you are and a little bit of your background. Sure. Physically, I'm located in Chicago, and my background is a little bit non-traditional with respect to what I'm doing today. So my background initially is in computer science and medicine. I got an MD and a PhD from Dartmouth. The PhD was in computer science. And my main research focus as a graduate student and in an initial research career was in computational biology. So we were working on computational models for drug discovery and disease modeling. And after I received those degrees, I was faculty at the University of Toronto, uh, where I still maintain an adjunct appointment. And my research focus up there was also in computational biology and medicine. And, and of course, that may sound a little different than forensics and topography, but really computer science is applied math. And the question for a computer scientist is in what area are you going to apply that math? And so initially it was biomedical research. Now it's forensic science. And both of those areas rely on the same kinds of computer science. They both rely upon algorithm development, optimization, statistical models, even things like looking at images and three-dimensional geometries. Here we're looking at three-dimensional surface geometries of cartridge casings. But in my former life, it was three-dimensional models of protein structures and drug interactions. So there's a lot of similarity there. And after I left the University of Toronto, moved back into the United States, I started a consulting group with a bunch of other faculty that were at research universities. And we basically offered contract research services to pharma and biotech companies. And that was interesting for, for a bit. There's some pluses and minuses to that area of work. But Tom and I have known each other for a long time. And this idea to work on 3D imaging stemmed from our conversations. And it's kind of taken on a whole life of its own. And that brings us to today. On today's show, we're going to be talking to Ryan and Todd about their groundbreaking research in the area of optical topography and firearms identification. And why is optical topography important to firearms examination? And I'll give you a, an analogy from another area, and that is autonomous driving. All the uh, driverless cars that are out there, or at least most of them, are using a concept called LIDAR, which is laser radar. They actually shoot a laser out millions of times a second and they see how long it takes for the laser light to come back. And that measurement tells you how far away something is. What's nice about that is it relates directly to how far away something is. 
And so the uh, laser systems give a very, very clear picture, in most cases, of uh, the road ahead of these autonomous vehicles. And in the same way, the optical topography microscopes give a very clear idea about what a three-dimensional surface looks like and does so where every last bit of that surface is in focus in the final image. And as a result, a firearms examiner doesn't have to be looking at data that is uh, anything less than perfect or close to perfect representation. The data that's produced is very, very clear. And it's also in numbers. So it provides the possibility, that hasn't been done yet, that down the road we'll be able to relate the human examiner's judgment to a statistical representation. You can say now, instead of, you know, it's in my judgment, you can also say that within a certain certainty, this is a match or not to evidence in question. And that's, of course, something that is a big interest to forensic science generally across many, many disciplines. Honestly, without optical topography, it would be very, very difficult to come up with that kind of statistics. In the same way driverless cars are only possible using that laser imaging, in the same way we hope to be able to use optical topography to improve the work of examiners. So both of you have uh, taken a roundabout uh, route. Todd's is certainly more direct being in, in forensics the entire way, but uh, I took a roundabout. I've always been in forensic science, but I think my time in the other disciplines have helped me with a kind of broader perspective, both for my day-to-day -day casework, but also for the type of research that we're doing. I can draw upon some of my other experiences there when tackling some of the problems that Ryan and I are dealing with with our current research. Uh, so Ryan, you actually uh, had been talking to Todd before you started developing the instrument, or how did that work? Well, so Todd and I have known each other since we were both up at Dartmouth. We had uh, actually, Todd's wife it was someone who was in medical school with me, and so I met Todd through a classmate. And we've always talked about science and work and things like that, that's just the kind of people that we are. But it was probably around the time of the recent NAS report when you know firearm forensics is kind of looking to improve, let's say, the science or the technology behind what they were doing. I was talking to Todd about some work that another friend of mine was working on at MIT, and he was imaging 3D surfaces for, for computer graphics and for imaging. And I said to Todd, I wonder if we can use this 3D imaging technology in firearm forensics. So Todd and I brainstormed on that idea for a little bit, and we put together essentially a proof of concept experiment where we took some, some pairs of known match cartridge casings, and we scanned them using this new technology. Then I hacked together some simple code to determine the similarities, compute a measure of similarity between any pair of casings, and it actually worked really well. It was obviously just the first attempt at this, so it was pretty crude, but it worked well enough that we said, hey, there's something here. So it was around that time, I think around 2012, that we uh, decided to apply for NIST funding and funding from NIJ. And it took a little while for us to get those grant applications together, but we started work on this project in 2013. That's really when we started full bore. And basically starting in 2013, we, we basically have gone from there to where we are today, which is a kind of a fully functioning, just emerging from prototype stage, where we have all the imaging hardware and all the imaging software at a state that you actually can use it in a crime lab. So Todd, is this something that you envisioned from the get-go as being something that uh, Oakland would, it would be interested in, or was this more of a personal interest, or how did, the, how did you approach it? Well, I think it's both. It's more from the broader perspective. I, I viewed the 2009 NAS report as kind of a challenge to the profession. Clearly, 
there's technology out there that can be tapped into. And also, I got really excited when Ryan and I started talking about this possibility, and I just saw the potential. So from that perspective, it's more for the profession on the whole, potential it brings for the future and for the, the types of analyses you can do moving forward. So there have been two National Academies reports that are relevant to this idea. The first is the National Academy's review of whether a national ballistics database is possible, one of all guns, and the conclusion being that no, that's not technically feasible. There's a much more famous report, which was the February 2009 report on strengthening forensic science in the United States, a path forward. And the aim of the committee at that time was to chart an agenda for progress in the forensic science community and its scientific disciplines, including in firearm and toolmark identification. And one of the uh, recommendations that came out of the committee is that all forensic disciplines need to be able to cast their results in quantitative terms, if at all possible. And there's actually no fundamental reason why firearms identification can't be statistically characterized with a reasonable numerical confidence interval, just like DNA or any other discipline. And the hope is, of course, that advances in optical topography and in the mathematical understanding of the uniqueness of impressions based on optical topography will provide that advance. Like our guest today, I came to the issue of firearm identification and optical topography fairly later in my career, although I was interested in those technologies for a long time. Back in the 1990s, my lab had a confocal microscope, but we didn't go anywhere near bullet evidence. We uh, actually had a joint program we did with the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins. I don't know if uh, any of you are familiar, but premature babies are often born blind because of developmental issues. We were using confocal microscopy at that time to examine the mechanisms by which that happened in animal models and trying to figure out ways to uh, prevent the blindness from occurring. And I'm glad to say that medical research has come a long way and firearm evidence has come a long way as well, I think, because of applying this uh, rather interesting and new microscopy to us in, uh, in the uh, firearms identification area. The other issue that raised for me was in the desire to have a national database in firearms that was looked at back in the mid-2000s. The National Academy of Sciences actually did a study uh, that was sponsored by the National Institute of Justice at the time, to look at whether it was viable to do a national database of all firearms. And there's political reasons why that may not be a good idea, but there's also technical reasons, and the academies concluded that it just wasn't possible given the limitations of microscopy. But one of the great things that we did was we were able to split off some significant money to start a research program to improve the uh, use of confocal microscopy and other topographic techniques uh, as applied to toolmark evidence and, of course, specifically to looking at firearm identification. And as a result, now 10 years later, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has been able to do amazing work in the area. And we have some technology developers like our guest today who've made some major advances that I think will uh, have a big impact on the very uh, foundation, improving the ability of firearms examiners to do their job effectively. So tell me, I mean, why do you think these instruments are finally getting used in firearms examination now? Why is it relevant in 2016, but it wasn't relevant in 1996? Right. So I think, I think there's a, a number of, of factors that go into it. So yes, certainly confocal microscopes were around for many decades. 
And of course, their costs were prohibitively high for quite some time. And in fact, they're still pretty high. Most of the systems that are in use, you know, in, in the firearms forensics, for example, are not confocal microscopes. I mean, you can certainly buy one if you want to. But there are new technologies for imaging in 3D that have come about more recently that are bringing the price down and even the, the speed of acquisition, so how long, how long it takes to collect a scan, is coming down to the point where it's actually feasible to use in the lab. So our technology is called GelSight. As I mentioned earlier in the conversation, a good friend from graduate school is doing a postdoctoral fellowship at MIT in, in Cambridge. And part of his work was in this 3D imaging technology. They have taken that 3D imaging technology, which is the gel site, and are attempting to commercialize it for other uses. And they work with a lot of um, research labs and manufacturers and so on who want to look at 3D. We're working on application of their technology within the forensic space. They're basically a sister company. and We work very closely with them. Their technology has, was not around for 30 years or so. And their technology, which is really nice, is that it's very fast and it's relatively inexpensive compared to confocal microscopes, especially confocal microscopes of past. There are other techniques like uh, focus variation, which have also become much more feasible today because technology has improved and costs have come down. But there's also other things in terms of the image manipulation and visualization, which have become much easier to use. So for example, our scans are about 70 megabytes, right? One primer is about 70 megabytes for our scan. That's not a huge file today, but it isn't tiny. And if you had a database of a thousand of them, for example, now you're talking about something that really isn't insignificant. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that really would have been a very heavy thing for computers to save, load, transfer, etc. Not to mention visualize. Visualization of these surfaces is actually relatively computationally intense. It's almost as intense or maybe more intense than a lot of these fancy new computer games where you have these very, very rich surfaces and textures because our surface has a lot of texture on it. And so you need a relatively high-end graphics card and visualization system to get good responsive graphics. So I think that while the technology for many things have existed for decades, it's really coming to the point where now the, the speed, the cost, and just the kind of ease with which you can use the technology has reached a point where it's accessible to more people. So the gel site technology, what's, uh, it does require the use of the gel. How, how in practice would you do, say, a, a cartridge examination using the gel site? Right, so that's, that's, uh, I'll try my best to explain it. Usually we do it with a, a couple of slides and an animation, and even then it's something that's a little foreign. So the basic idea is that if you want to determine three-dimensional surface texture or topography of an object, you could imagine putting it down on a table and then looking at it from above. And then let's pretend you turned off the lights in the room and you took a flashlight in one hand and you were to move that flashlight around the object. As you move the flashlight around the object, what you're going to see is going to be a function of where that light is and the surface shape. So if the surface is angled in a way to reflect the light up into your eye, you'll see a lot of light. And if it happens to be a surface that's angled away from where the light currently is, it will not reflect up and into your eye or into the camera. So the basic idea is to take multiple images of an object where you have lights in multiple different positions, and then to fuse that back by inferring or computing the three-dimensional surface of the object that you're looking at. Now, this, in a crude way, is called photometric stereo, and that's been around for a few decades. The challenge with photometric stereo is that it assumes the object you're looking at has, let's say, a fixed color. It's a solid color, which means, if it's a solid color, that the light you're gonna see in your eye, or the camera, is only a function of the light source position and the surface shape. 
But if your object doesn't have a single color, let's say it has shiny spots and dull spots or different materials being present or different colors being present, then the amount of light that's reflected back into your eye or the camera is not only a function of the surface shape and the light, but also a function of the surface color at that position. So what the gel does, the gel is a clear piece of elastomeric material. Think of it as a squishy material. It's almost like a shoe gel insert. I was thinking saran wrap, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the saran wrap is very thin and it's not compressible. The gel that goes into your shoes, it's, it's about a few millimeters thick and it's very squishy. So we have a squishy piece of gel, which is clear except for the bottom layer, which has a pigment embedded in it. What happens is you take the object you want to image and you push it into the pigmented side. Because it's a few millimeters thick and it's squishy, what happens is the gel essentially squishes and contours to the object you're trying to image. And because it has that pigment layer baked into it, that pigment layer contours to the surface as well. It's kind of like taking a bed sheet and putting it over a piece of furniture. So it will contour to the shape of that furniture. And if you wrap it really tightly against the furniture, you basically get the entire shape of the furniture. So what we've done now is take an object that may have different materials, different reflectance properties, different colors, and we've essentially laid this thin layer of paint or pigment on it. We can now take our images using that photometric stereo trick. And when we're done, we simply remove the gel. And because the pigment is baked into the gel, there's no residue on the object that you're imaging. So you can think of it almost like it's a temporary casting because the object has to be behind the gel the entire time we're imaging. And then when we're done, we take the object away, the gel bounces back, and you can use it again and again and again. So that's, that's the kind of the high-level intuition. Yeah, so are there limits with respect to the geometry of the object then? I can imagine it might be difficult to put that gel around something that's a more, uh, more complex shape, uh, like a deformed bullet, for example, or all the way around a casing. That's right. So there's certainly, certainly some limits uh, to how the gel contours to the surface, and there's trade-offs. You can make a gel very, very soft, for example, which would be so soft that if you put some bubbles on it, that the bubbles shape themselves will actually cause changes in the structure of the gel. Or you can make the gel very, very firm so that a car tire on the gel would actually deform it just enough that you can see it. So we've come up with a nice firmness and gel formulation that works very well for cartridge casings that we're looking at. And it does contour to the surface um, pretty well. One thing that it does better than some other technologies, for example, confocal microscopy, is that we can handle steep slopes better than confocal microscopy can. Confocal microscopy has issues if the slope is more than, let's say, 45 or so degrees, which can sometimes happen in cartridge casings in the aperture shear. But part of the, uh, the primer and the, the marks on it that are very informative happen to usually lie at a slope or often lie at a slope. So confocal microscopy may miss those, whereas for us, we can capture those steep slopes pretty well with the gel. With respect to bullets, you mentioned bullets. We really are not imaging bullets right now. We're looking primarily at the cartridge casings. But bullets are harder because they are obviously rounded. They may be damaged, so they're in some absolutely bizarre shape, which is very difficult to put under the gel. We have scanned some pristine bullets, ones that have been shot into a water tank or recovery device, and we can do a good job. Uh, we get each of the lands separately. But generally, we're not looking at bullets right now. We're looking at cartridge casings, which are generally flat on the bottom, and we can do a nice job of getting the gel to contour. So uh, at, at this point, what you're doing really is taking the gel site instrument, which you're basically leveraging from other, air, other industries, other, other applications, and, for example, engineering this gel to this particular practice area, understanding how the algorithms will work, understanding uh, how it might be beneficial and things like proficiency testing, et cetera. And all of that is happening under NIJ funding, is that right? So, yes, to some extent. We're taking the 
part of the technology that comes from the gel site company themselves, which makes the imaging sensor and part of that setup that I just described to you. We're working with them to improve the formulation and optimize that formulation for firearm forensics, of course. And then there is a large hardware component that we're designing all around it. So, for example, the receiver, the holder for the cartridge casing is something that we've specifically designed. The supports for the light plate, the mounting mechanism, the force feedback, again, that's all hardware and electronics that we've designed. We have a custom circuit board that we just got uh, version two of, which is, again, designed all from scratch, which is separate from the other company. So there's a lot of hardware design that's going into it. There's a lot of software design that's going into it as well. It's not enough to just capture the three-dimensional surface topography. We want to, of course, build these algorithms that we've been describing, the visualization modes like the heat map we described, the database functionality that we have uh, as well. So tailoring that towards the firearms community. And then, of course, doing all the studies to validate that this is a good thing to do and, and that it actually works. So in the first couple of years, we did some large studies with large numbers of cartridge casings. Uh, we published a paper in the AFD Journal in, in 2015 to summarize a lot of those studies. And I think to the best of Todd, my knowledge, those are probably the largest studies that have been done on three-dimensional imaging of cartridge casings that have been published to date. So we've done large studies to validate that 3D imaging works and that ours works. We have ongoing collaborations with a lot of labs to collect that type of data and validate it within them. And in terms of the support, you're right, one of our largest financial supports have come from grants from NIST and from NIJ. And we also have funding from other sources and are self-funded. So certainly what we've done has been enabled by the grants that we've been able to receive. Right. Well, I think what you said uh, earlier was a very important point. And depending upon your point of view as whether you're looking at this from, a, you know, the historical perspective about evolving the technology uh, here or you're just talking about it in the year 2025, you know, when a lab is doing validation or whatever it is, uh, you might look at it from the perspective of, uh, you know, maybe I'm looking at the standard casing from NIST, or maybe I'm looking at uh, a subset of data like the Toliner's set, or I'm looking at the broader set of the thousands of test fires that NIST and the FBI are doing. Theoretically, I think you're right that it should not matter which instrument you're using. The power of these systems is such that the artifacts are unimportant at the scale of the markings that are relevant to firearms identification. There might be some issues with respect, like you mentioned, uh, seed slopes and that kind of thing, but uh, there should be a, a basic interoperability of the data as long as there, we don't get into too many issues with regard to uh, vendor-specific data and things of that nature. But the instruments right. themselves should be fundamentally interoperable. They should be, as, well as, as long as they're all measuring in standard units. Uh, which is what they should be measuring, especially now that we're in 3D. If they're measuring in the units of microns, then a micron is a micron is a micron. And that gets to that X3P file format, uh, which is being adopted by the community. So X3P is just the file name extension, and it's the file format for the exchange of 3D topographic data. There's a group called the Open FMC Forensic Metrology Consortium, which was essentially started by NIST and, and us, Cadre, a couple of years ago. And now if we have, have buy-in from another, a bunch of other agencies, um, vendors, academic groups, and so on. And the, the primary goal of this open FMC is to establish this open file format. And so we looked at a variety of, of possible formats to use. Uh, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel, of course. And we found a file format that's in use by uh, other groups around the world, particularly for looking at surface topographies of landscapes, the Earth, large topographies, macro topographies. But it could basically be used in the same way that uh, for us. Instead of meters, we're measuring in microns. 
And so this X3P file format is already supported by certain softwares. Um, it's soon to be, if not already, an ISO standard, which is nice because then it means it's uh, you know, people who know what they should be doing when they want to implement it. And so our system implements and supports X3P. Uh, we have some software available on the openfmc.org website, which also you can, you can download and, and use for, to view X3P files. Or if you're a developer or a researcher, there is kind of back-end code that you could use for your research work. And I think that what's going to happen is, and I can't speak, of course, for various agencies, et cetera, but I think that the move is that all the systems and all the labs should support this format. And if they do, then it means that any system that supports the format can be used to collaborate with any other system that supports that same format. And I think that's probably what's going to happen. You're not going to have everybody using one vendor anymore. I think there's going to be multiple vendors, just like there are multiple different types of smartphone. Uh, you pick your favorite one that you like. They all have pluses and minuses, and they can all talk to each other. Yeah, I'd hate for us to get to the point where we're right back where we started uh, like the APHIS uh, systems are, where we're, we've been debating for 20 years about how to make them interoperable, and, and it's still very uh, proprietary with respect to the data formats, because the data formats are very dependent upon the al underlying algorithm. Yeah, so I mean, certainly parts are dependent on the algorithm, meaning the matching components and how you save and store the results of doing a comparison, those may be unique and a function of the system. But the actual 3D measurement itself, the surface, the, the image, so to speak, that is just raw data in SI units, and it's basically a grid of sample points, X, Y, and Z coordinates. And there's really no reason why we can't do it. And it's really a hard argument to make that we shouldn't, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to make the argument that, that each lab should be an island and they shouldn't be able to exchange. And I think that whether or not this is kind of legislated or not, it will happen. Because the labs which participate in systems which use X3P will be able to collaborate and work together and the labs that are islands will be kind of left alone and they'll say hey we want to play too okay well then you need to get something which participates there's a real issue here that I think we need to discuss and that is the reliability of optical topography images and how they relate to a casing because in the end it's really an instrument that is trying to develop a representation of a bullet or cartridge casing and not the casing itself. And, it's, and, and just by that nature, that means that there's a possibility that it's not a reliable image, that there's artifacts in it or other kinds of issues that are different in the measurement versus the actual piece of evidence. And so it's very important to understand how reliable the data is versus the actual casing. And the question is often raised in court, and we want to, before that happens, develop the science necessary to understand how this technology works and be able to understand exactly how reliable the optical topography representations are. Yeah, then that's a really important point. So what you're saying is how do we know that what we're measuring is actually what's actually there? The way you do that is by measuring reference standards and traceable reference standards, for example, things that may have come out of NIST or another qualifying lab that says, we know that this particular reference specimen is 25 microns in size, and we measured it at 25.1 micron in size, and so therefore we're within whatever the error bounds are. So we do have in our system a means of using a traceable reference specimen so we can decide or report that we are within tolerance, which for us is within a micron lateral and depth resolution. And if you're without, outside of those specs, then you will want to recalibrate your system 
again, and each lab will have their own standard operating procedures for what happens when you fall out of spec, just like any other piece of lab equipment. Typically, you will go back to the last time you were in spec and recollect that data. But every lab's going to do that differently, so that's no different what we're doing with, with other systems. Uh, but what it brings up is a very important point, which is as other 3D imaging technologies appear within the forensic space, it's important that they all be evaluated with that criteria. Meaning, if you have some random technology X and it comes in and claims to be measuring in 3D, but they aren't using any reference specimens to verify that a micron is a micron is a micron, then you really don't know what they're measuring and know if that's actually correct or not. And so if you take that non-qualified measurement into a courtroom and someone asks, you know, well, how do you know this is right? It's hard for them to justify that it's correct unless you use a, re a traceable reference standard. So that's something that we do, um, but it's not something that all the, all the systems do. Sure. What is the end game here for the gel site instrument in particular um, and uh, what, are the, what are the barriers now that you have to overcome to get to that end with respect to into practical use? I'll start, but I'm going to hand it off to Todd in terms of thinking about what the barriers in the crime lab might be for grabbing it. But from our perspective, you know, we're still developing a lot of the pieces of the technology and then verifying or validating that they're actually functioning the way that we want them to. So we still have more development work to do before we're done, of course, and maybe we'll never be done, right? We're going to keep making it better and better and better through software updates. And in fact, most of the improvements that we've made over the last two years or so, most of them on the software side. So for example, any local, state, or federal lab that are using our system now, they'll get a software update and all of a sudden their system can do things that it couldn't do before. It kind of reminds me of a, uh, the Tesla car, of course, a very high-end automobile. It gets software updates over the air. But if you own a Tesla, you'll wake up and the next day your car actually is faster because you got a software update. And we're kind of trying to do the same thing here that we're improving the software. So our end game is basically to continue to make the system better and then to try to get it into as many labs as we can. We think that it's going to be part of the new ecosystem in the future. Different labs will have different systems. Some may have our system. Some may have systems from another vendor. So I think that's where we're going to get to. But I'll, I'll hand it off to Todd to think about barriers to adoption in the lab. Well, I think the biggest barrier is showing first that this is as good, if not better, than the comparison microscope. And I think the workshop that we taught was the first step in that process. I do think with the virtual microscopy, just the most basic case of doing comparisons on the computer screen instead of on traditional optical microscope, there's some strong compelling arguments. Um, you essentially are archiving your evidence. Once you have it scanned digitally, you now have that evidence and can be compared against future cases. And so if, you, if we have another serious case, crime, that occurs six months later, I no longer have to beg the original submitting agency to return the evidence. I can just do the comparison on the computer screen. Examples like that, I think, are compelling, not only to examiners, but also lab, laboratory management, as far as optimizing examiner time and expertise. So it's going to be convincing examiners that the images they see are true and real, and I think we're getting to that point. And I think a big part of that is also the, the verification or, or validation process. And you're probably aware, a lot of people may be aware, because people have been talking about it in a lot of the meetings, so NIST and the FBI right now are doing large studies with large numbers of firearms and large numbers of casings. So Alan Jen at NIST and Eric Smith at the FBI Firearms Toolmark Unit, they've given presentations at many AFTI meetings and research meetings about their work. When they take these thousands and thousands of test fires and put it into the systems and the systems get measured performance out, that will be the type of validation 
that people are looking for to say, okay, I believe this system. I believe that what we're seeing is right, and I believe that when it gives us an answer, that there's a basis for why we think that that's a good answer or that it's correct or believable. If the result of this large study being done by Eric and Alan is that all the systems fail miserably, well, then we know that and we're done. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that the systems will generally perform pretty well. And if there are blind spots or issue spots, we'll find those. And hopefully the systems will address those particular issues. Right. I I think another example I I mentioned at this workshop was kind of taking the curtain off of the black box of the examiner and using this type of technology for proficiency tests or for validation tests, where one of the troubles with proficiency tests and validation tests is you need to generate hundreds and hundreds of samples and send those out. Well, not every bullet or casing is marked exactly the same. So I might get a test and it's not marked very well. And so I can, the only conclusion I can reach is to say, well, I don't really know. It's inconclusive. I don't have good marks here. Whereas maybe Ryan gets a set of samples and they're marked great. And he says, well, it's an identification, of course. But when from an outside perspective, that difference of an opinion there looks like an error or looks like a mistake. If you use this 3D imaging for the testing, everyone's looking at the same exact sample. And so you've taken out the variability. Uh, so I, I think that's another great example that can really help really get closer to overall examiner error rates, study how decisions are made, what types of marks examiners are using. And so all these, all these types of use cases that just really show the potential for the type of technology. This has been a great conversation. Uh, we want to thank Ryan Lillian and Todd Weller for their participation in this podcast. In addition to Ryan and Todd's work, the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence is developing a landscape study that will cover optical topography. And on the webpage for the podcast, you'll be able to see a link to that landscape study and the other work that is out there from NIJ and the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence related to firearms identification. If you'd like to learn more about the work other people in the field are doing, please visit our website. Here's what we're talking about next week on Just Science. We have Tasha Hex and Christoph Champaud determining subjective probability into the world of statistics and forensic science. Here we are years later, and we're still struggling with the exact same thing. How we reason in forensic science is very ill-defined. That's what makes things difficult. Because there are some people who are looking at these problems who would object to what you're saying. The Bayesian approach is a tool that helps us think about what questions we should ask. The logical leap that people have some trouble with is... Forensic science is essentially an applied science, and it has to be applied to live.